my friends at futureprimitive.org. Today, we welcome author and filmmaker Helena Norberg-Hodge. She is the founder and director of ISEC, the International Society for Ecology and Culture. ISEC is a non-profit organization dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. She is a pioneer of the new economy movement and has been promoting an economics of personal, social and ecological well-being for more than 30 years. Trained in linguistics, she has given lectures in seven languages and has appeared on broadcast, print, and online media worldwide, including MSNBC, The London Times, The Sunday Morning Herald, and The Guardian. Her groundbreaking work in Ladakh, or Little Tibet, earned her the Right Livelihood Award or Alternative Nobel Prize. And her book, Ancient Futures, along with a film of the same title, has been translated in more than 40 languages. So perhaps, Helena, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for being willing to be with us. Um, thank you. When, uh, um, would you speak about what Ancient Futures evokes for you? For me, it's about our need to spiral back towards a deeper connection to one another, to community, and to nature. And I, I learned that from living uh, and learning to speak the language fluently with this ancient Tibetan culture in Ladakh. I, I saw the, the joy that comes from that, the ease of being, the the embeddedness with the plants, the animals, the cycles of the seasons, it can all sound very romantic and it's hard to convey, you know, for some people who are locked into an urban industrial lifestyle. But um, I experienced that very deeply there. And then I would go back to the West every year and I would find that throughout the industrialized world, there were projects like yours, like Future Primitive. Everywhere you went, you could see that people are starting and trying to move in this direction. And there are literally millions of projects that show, uh, I believe, our deeper need and desire. It's a biological desire as well as a psychological one. It's, a, it's also really a desire out of necessity now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we go back for a moment? I'd like to ask you how, from studying linguistics, what was the path that led you to travel to Ladakh? Well, it was really my, my interest in, in linguistics was really an interest in understanding other worldviews and other cultures. And I, I, at an early age, I'm Swedish mainly, but also English and German, and I had studied in all three countries and had relatives in all three countries and that already opened my eyes up to these cultural differences which I was fascinated by and so I then later studied Italian in Italy and Spanish in Mexico and French in France. I was very lucky to be able to do that and again I was just you know, fascinated by the, the cultural differences and the, and the richness of that diversity. And then I was asked to go out as part of the film team, having trained in linguistics mm-hmm. to this unknown part of the world, Ladakh, which is really Tibet. It's the western part of Tibet that belongs politically to India. But the Dalai Lama is the spiritual head, and it's, it's, uh, it's basically Tibet, up on the Tibetan plateau. Yes, I was very attracted to Ladakh. I, I haven't been there, but... Uh, it is said that the light here in Santa Fe and the light in Ladakh is very similar. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's a high-altitude desert, and there's also similarity between that culture, of course, and the Hopi, Hopi culture and the, 
you know, the Adobe architecture, and there are many, many similarities. So, to a certain extent, uh, you show us that a certain aspect of globalization brought indignity to the people of Ladakh. Could you speak about that? Yes, I, I saw, having learned to speak the language fluently, I think I got an insight into the psychological dimension of the breakdown of cultures worldwide. Um, I had come to know, you know, very deeply people who were the happiest people I had ever encountered. It took me several years to sort of really realize that. It's funny. You know, I had uh, all sorts of preconceptions and things that prevented me from really seeing that. But it was, it was just this joy and humor and lightness of being that was quite remarkable. A way of, you know, if the weather suddenly changed when we were walking from one village to another, we Westerners who had an idea that today we're going from A to B, we would feel a sense of disappointment or frustration. Whereas for the Ladakhis, it was as though, you know, it just didn't matter whether we went or didn't go. There was just this ease of being with flux and change. Mm-hmm. In, in the living world. Um, anyway, I saw how this also was connected to this most amazing deep self-respect. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't go on for too long, I guess, but you know, in my book, Ancient Futures, I give many examples of this that just amazed me. Just a sort of a deep tolerance of, of difference that was connected to being so deeply confident in yourself. And and it was a confidence which wasn't, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of showing off, I'm mm-hmm. very great. No, that this was a confidence that displayed itself in this amazing tolerance of difference and even, even accepting, you know, someone being rude to you or treating you badly, just being um, so deeply confident and self-accepting. And then I saw how advertising, also even the radio stuff that came in, tourism, Suddenly, as this area, which had been closed for 40 years to the outside world, mm-hmm. no one was allowed to go there for political reasons. And so when it was suddenly opened up, there was a flood of information from the outside. And I saw how young people started seeing what looked like a culture where there was infinite wealth. In the early days when tourists came in, it looked as though it would, if we had Martians land in Santa Fe mm-hmm. and spend about $100,000 a day. Yeah. And with ease, you know, not in any way thinking about it. So for young people, it seemed rather idiotic to listen to their parents who wanted them to farm and, you know, work. And, and there was this other culture that was so incredibly wealthy and powerful. And that, the, the worst thing about that was that it developed a sense of inferiority very quickly in the young mm-hmm. and a sense that they were backward and primitive and it was shameful, everything about their own culture. Mm-hmm. This self-rejection, I think, you know, we really need to understand that better and I hope I'm not monologuing too long, oh, no, but I'd no. like to, to add that that I started then over many years because I was out there for about half a year and then I'd go back to the West mm-hmm. and I was giving talks in many different countries and as I would go back I would find there were more and more problems with things like eating disorders and and, and psychological problems yeah. uh, among the young and I realized that that the same process essentially was going on within the heart of the West that these idealized images in the media and concomitant with that was the breakdown of deep interdependent interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. with a broader group than the nuclear family so that the, the, the role models for young people were no longer flesh and blood people that they could see and hear and touch and know that nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. Even if someone has a bit more money, they might mm-hmm. not be the most beautiful, they, they don't have the best singing voice, whatever. We all have our strengths and weaknesses in the real world. Right. But this media world is playing a very big role in creating 
a completely unrealistic image of perfection, and that that in non-Western cultures um, had the effect of, of wanting to totally reject their own language, their own skin color. Uh, you know, I saw young people, this probably started happening after about a decade, you know, buying very dangerous and harmful skin lightening creams that often yeah. led to terrible eczema and so on, but they're still being used. Fair and Lovely is one of their mm-hmm. brands that, yeah. um, you know, uh, part of this whole thing, blue contact lenses sold in South America, China. So I, I, um, I saw this happening in Ladakh and then studied it in other cultures. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we, we all need to to understand that better because, of course, we, we all know that community is, uh, uh, you know, is, is an absolutely essential um, ingredient of the future right. we're all striving for. So here's a question I have for you. Uh, perhaps it's true that when our creativity is totally linked to our survival, we don't even know that it's our unique creativity when we create a basket that's going to receive maize, when we create a pot that's going to receive water. We just do it because we need it. And there's great dignity in that. How do you think this dignity of a people's creativity, like, for instance, cheeses in France, how can this understanding of our own creativity as local people, how can that be restored? Well, I, I am convinced and have always been working for a deeper dialogue between the most industrialized, urbanized parts of the world and, and the less industrialized, urbanized parts. Mm-hmm. But I think there is so much to learn from those people who are still making those pots in that way. And and there is something to be learned about the longing that we feel for a deeper embeddedness and, and connection. And, and, and maybe I could also describe it better in terms of the relationship to nature. You know, yes. In the same way, I found that in Ladakh, their poetry and their songs would be filled with uh, you know, words about the beauty of the stars and the sunset and the rising sun over the mountains. And and yet, as I would observe, you know, as I would be, you know, enthralled by the sunset uh, and, the, and the incredible beauty of the landscape, very clearly they didn't feel the same intensity and, if you like, the same conscious appreciation of it. Mm-hmm. And and I and I think in the same way when someone in the West makes an object of beauty, there is a different level of consciousness of appreciation for that mm-hmm. than there would be among the Ladakhis or people like them. I have come to be quite convinced that part of the reason why we are so intensely conscious of these things is because we have experience the separation and the ugliness of the of the plastic mass produced um, we've experienced landscapes you know with the high tension wires and the and the concrete boxes and so on and so for us um, it's that contrast I think that makes us so much more uh, appreciative of something that is more more natural and and I do think we need to start um, looking at ecological and personal well-being as sort of guiding principles, because it does turn out that uh, in terms of long-term well-being, the, the more natural way is going to be essential for our well-being. I think, I think that's an awareness that's growing, and I think we need to be able to make values about that. I don't know, does that sound too absolutist to you? Well, uh, it might be to a certain extent a, a contrast between true felt beauty and, not, and a starvation for beauty. It, what might bring us back might be the contrast between how we feel 
in front of true beauty and how we feel uh, with no beauty being the the plastic bag. Do you think that 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 might have an influence, that our consciousness of true beauty might have an influence in, in us going back or coming forward with ways that are more beautiful? I do, but I also think now, from what I've seen, one of the difficulties of my work has been that I've seen things as um, incredibly systemic, you know, multidimensional. Mm-hmm. So I think that our, our longing for for something that is, you know, on the one hand more beautiful is also something that is more healthy and more truly sustainable. And so that there is, pro, you know, that there are probably deeper unconscious reasons why we long for that beauty, as I said, because it is at the same time more healthy, more sustainable, more more generous, more just, because it's not robbing future generations of mm-hmm. their right to mm-hmm. to a good life, you know, so there are all these multidimensional reasons, I think, that, that are, are leading to that desire and to those movements everywhere in the world. I find it so interesting, I write about that in Ancient Futures yes. too, you know, for me, evidence for this is that there's almost no no uh, discipline or category anymore that you won't find the term eco or alternative in front, you know, whether it's eco-literacy, eco-psychology, eco, mm-hmm. you know, medicine, it's alternative medicine or holistic, but in virtually every area we're desperately trying to establish something that is more in harmony with the natural world and, um, and as I say, you know, more truly sustainable. And of course, we, we all long for the day when, when it'll be the other way around, you know, that mm-hmm. the toxic and chemical will be labeled as such and that we won't have to label the, the natural as, as natural. Yes, that's right. So you speak about drone economy. I see that children might be desensitized in a lot of ways. Do you see a solution to that desensitization, and how do uh, what can we do about it? Well, I do. I I do. I feel that there is great hope in the, you know, just as you were saying, the sort of necessity for change. Well, now we're seeing the you know the rapid growth of poverty in the middle classes in America and. And this is uh, this is a great hope that before things get even worse, that movements like the Occupy movement and and many of the other you know attempts to raise awareness about the economy uh, will grow stronger. Um, when when we see how you know when we really understand that our political leaders. As they seek to get elected, or speaking our language, speaking to us, Obama just now talking basically the language of the Occupy movement, mm-hmm. talking about not letting corporations, you know, take their jobs to the other side of the world, and you know, and appalled by the the wealth of the one percent and so on. Well, this is now this has been going on for a long, long time. That leaders from both left and right speak our language as they seek election, but then what they do once they're elected is to implement the policies of, of essentially of global capital. And it's, it's of a system that I believe has grown mainly because of ignorance. So I think it's very, um, it's very important, I think, that we realize that uh, because some people see it as the fault of a few individuals, you know, one will often hear in England, oh, it's all because of Maggie Thatcher, or in America, oh, it's Ronald Reagan. Well, it wasn't like that. It's a, it's a global system, and the key element has been the deregulation of trade and, and finance. Mm-hmm. It's, finance has been a trade in money, basically. So it's, it's, a, it's global trade allowing foreign investors the same rights as local investors, which may sound fine, you know, why shouldn't foreigners have the same rights that we do? Mm -hmm. But what we're talking about is essentially 
handing over power to giant transnational corporations to move in and out of every economy with, um, uh, you know, with the rights to accumulate wealth. And what's happened is that they've been blackmailing governments for a long, long time right. in the form of trade treaties. Uh, saying, if you don't give us lower environmental laws, if you don't give us lower prices for resources, lower labor prices, sorry, we're going somewhere else. <laughs> so this blackmailing of governments has led to a, a very frightening, um, you know, as we can now begin to see, uh, change. I think it's really helpful if people could also know that this is happening in Scandinavia, which is often held up yes. as a, a sort of ideal. Mm -hmm. um, it's happening all over the world. It's happening in China. You know, people who are getting jobs there, many of them are working 80 hours a week. And the suicide rate, the depression, I mean, is escalating. So I, my passion is to try to persuade people to devote some of their time to understanding this global economy. I think it's incredibly empowering when we do, because then it becomes very clear that everyone has something to gain by insisting on change, that this is truly a lose-lose agenda, and that there is a win-win agenda. And so it can sound a bit simplistic to be promoting localization, as, as we have been for 30 years, um, but it's because it's once we understand what globalization really has meant and that it's a very narrow and very central thread that has been ignored, largely ignored. And once we really see that, then the localizing in counterbalance to that becomes absolutely essential. How far we localize, you know, whether we, you know, most people I don't think are going to want to go back to a village economy where there's no industry. Mm -hmm. And in industrial production, like if we want to make, I hope it will be trains instead of cars and bicycles, you know, instead of cars. But for those products, without a doubt, large-scale industry is more efficient and a certain degree of centralization, uh, but not globalization. <clears throat> because once we allow business to become global entities, we're basically losing democracy. We're losing the ability for our elected officials to determine the rules. Now, in terms of the, ins, you know, the insensitivity that comes from that that you were asking about, I believe that the, the, you know, there's sort of two, there's a two-track thing that we need to do, mm -hmm. and and one of them is just awareness and information. It is a, a more intellectual process, um, but I I hope that people who engage in this will try to communicate, will see education as activism on this issue, and try to communicate in very clear, commonsensical language, not in you know, jargon and, and sort of inside speak, but really plain, simple language. On the other hand, I think we simultaneously should do everything we can for ourselves and others to encourage that deeper embeddedness with nature and community. And there, there are fabulous projects that, you know, involve taking juvenile delinquents out into wilderness and with a group, you know, so that simultaneously they develop a sense of interdependence with others and with nature. Often, simultaneously, they'll be helped to develop a few basic skills, something that we've all been deprived of, and those projects are, you know, wonderful um, healing tools, but they're not enough. I, I, you know, some of those projects I know have been targeting CEOs and, um, you know, corporate heads and so on. But without the clearly spelled out analysis of the economy and a very clear agenda of what we need to do about it, um, you know, helping individuals to feel happier and more connected to nature and, and community isn't enough. But I think the two together are, are what we need. Does that make sense? It makes the utmost sense. And I wanted to go back for a moment in your TED talk. You mentioned several times 
the 99%. And then you say about the 1%, like you just said, that it's not because um, these people are nasty, it's because they might be ignorant in the sense that there now might be several generations of people dealing in finance who haven't had dirt under their fingers. Is is that what you mean? I do, but actually even even with people who have um who have dirt under their fingers, the 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 this structural connection between large scale and reductionist knowledge. So if you're sitting in a in a um, you know nice building on Fifth Avenue in New York, and looking at your computer and trying to earn money for your investors, the fact that you cannot see the impact of what that money is doing, you know this money that's spinning around in this speculation now, is linked to the creation of seeds that will not regenerate, you know, terminated seeds. It's fundamentally linked to foisting weapons on countries around the world. It's linked to literally encouraging divisiveness and war. War is very profitable. It's linked to, you know, we are the most ruthless exploitation now of, you know, on a mammoth scale, cutting off mountaintops. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, we sort of know what's going on, but I think with the linkages, even within the, the environmental movement, I don't feel that the analysis is holistic enough. Uh, and so within the finance world or within the corporate world, people are not being forced to see the connections. Um, and that, and this is, again, why localization, which is about decentralizing economic activity, it's about choosing to do things at the smallest level possible, at every level. So as I was saying, you know, trains and bicycles, we're not going to be doing at the small town or village level. But food, forestry, fishing, all primary production is far, far more efficient and productive at a smaller scale and providing for people closer to home. And even in the giant cities, you know, people believe, oh, it's completely unrealistic and this and that. 30 years ago when I was living in Paris, the food... fabulous food in the markets of Paris. Most of it came from the region, and certainly most of it came from France. And in this era of globalization, you know, already 10 years ago, I don't know how long ago, but, you know, I found, you know, grapes from Argentina and garlic from China. I remember the the grapes from Argentina had a a little tag on them that said European patent. Um, So, you know, this it is not unrealistic, even for the cities. Uh, so what this requires is, of course, um, you know, the sort of action that's been happening in terms of local food in particular, but also other local economy initiatives. is very, it's, it's so inspiring and so remarkable because it's happened without any help from government anywhere. It's happened without any help from the media. I mean, we actually have been pioneers of that. We we promoted local food in America, in England, and, and also in Japan and Korea and so on, uh, already 25 years ago. And it was without any funding. You know, our books did not reach, you know, the New York Times, so we're not uh, very well known, but we were, we've been, you know, it's been typical of this movement that it's all been rather invisible and unfunded, but because it makes so much sense, and because it's so effective and so um, such a win-win strategy when mm-hmm. it, uh, when these projects actually take place, uh, it's gaining ground. Um, but it's very, very... I think I'm going off on a tangent now, but I don't know where we started, and you probably... You asked a completely different question, didn't you? Well, no, I was thinking about your compassion for the 1% of people who might not understand the systemic nature of their financial operations. So, yeah. 
I have I have known them in my family. I've known them in you know a lot, uh, you know, around the world as well. I found it fascinating that the sort of upper classes and the elites, even in Ladakh and Bhutan, share similar characteristics with the upper classes and elites in other countries. Very very interesting and. Often there, um, you find people who actually have a, a closer connection to nature than people who have been, you know, forced into a sort of a suburban or urban existence or, you know, into the slums uh, who've never experienced uh, the natural world. And in, in those elites, you'll often also have, uh, you know, for instance, Prince Charles. I have had private meetings with him. and. You know, his passion is farming and getting up and collecting the eggs in the morning and, you know, really, you know, a deep, deep connection to nature. However, there's also in that class there has been a type of schooling and a set of assumptions that is that are very insidious, that are very um, mm-hmm. counterproductive um, in terms of ideas, in terms of you know, the belief that growth is the only way forward, and also, I would say, in a training to suppress your emotions. It's very interesting to me that I see that uh, across the world, a very definite um, training, you know, often through boarding school. I mean, my own husband went to boarding school, and I, you know, I sort of, I see that, that, you know, rigorous training to suppress your emotions, suppress also your contact with your own body. Um, anyway, for me, this does not make them evil, you know, like an evil cabal. Uh, and and I see, um, you know, the, the need for us to understand better how this system works and why it works the way it does. And also to understand that now, far more important than these elites actually has become the structures of the corporation and the way that publicly traded corporations are essentially monsters. I mean, we've allowed the setting up of a business strategy and structure that is monstrous, that is pure, pure greed as a structure, and that I would say is truly evil as a structure. Um, because it, it, it's encouraging this blindness that grows more and more blind as it grows more global. If you have a privately owned company or a factory, you know, in your town, there and and the owner of the factory lives there, you're talking about a very very different scenario, and you're talking about the potential for you and for the owner to see the pollution of the river, to see the smoke, to see the abuse of labor. What we're talking about now is this truly evil system where we can't see what we're doing and the driving force is the accumulation of wealth for a smaller and smaller percentage of people and the impoverishment of, you know, the 99%. Mm-hmm. It's like having a robot as a mother. Yes, exactly. Very good. Robot as a mother or, or you know, as I, the drone economy you sit on one side of the world and push a few buttons and you kill people on the other side of the world. Well, you're doing that with weapons, but you're also doing that with money. When you support, you know, a few corporations, you know, about five corporations making billions, billion-dollar profit while more and more people starve, you know, you're killing people as you push buttons on the other side of the world. You know, it's a grown economy. Yeah, having a you know, mother as a, a robot. Helena, I would like to ask you to talk about your documentary, Isaac's new documentary, The Economics of Happiness. Thank you for asking me to do that. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, yes, this documentary tries to put together a bigger picture about what I've been talking about uh, on the one hand, uh, this globalizing, large-scale, speeded-up direction of the economy, separating producers and consumers further and further apart, 
and separating the investors from the impact of their action, how that is structurally really, really behind most of the serious crises that we have, social, environmental, psychological, spiritual crises. So in the film, we, we try to outline some of the key elements. It's extremely difficult in an hour to cover this adequately, and um, but we so believe that it's important to see these connections to create a linked-up movement for change, to create that linking of hands between the social, environmental, spiritual, religious movements to see that if we don't make change in the economy, we're going backwards in all those fields, and very rapidly so. And on the other hand, we show how without help, without, as I said, without any help from government or the media, this violent movement from the grassroots up is growing, where it's on a very local scale. Localization is happening, you know, in food in particular is where it's so amazingly successful and, and very, very encouraging, where small farms that are linked to markets closer to home or that have a more direct relationship with the consumers are thriving, and, and they're thriving because they're being helped to diversify on the land, which is helping farmers to become more ecological, um, structurally ecological, rather than what big business has tried to push, which is large monocultures that are labeled so-called organic, where it becomes very difficult and very expensive to grow in a, in a benign way where smaller-scale diversified farms um, make it easier um, to go organic. And, the, you know, farmers are earning more money. Consumers are generally paying less for really healthy, nutritious, fresh food. There is also a local business movement growing with now, I think, probably about at least 50,000 smaller businesses in one way or another in the U.S working as part of networks. The ballet network is one of the most prominent. And they're supporting small local businesses that are connected to their community, that are more sustainable and more responsible. And in banking, also there have been changes. Um, the recent statistics, where well, I think something like 600,000 people have now shifted their money into smaller credit unions or banks. Uh, but what, what's needed is a little bit of help from policy, because if we allow our political representatives to continue in the globalizing direction, the, the crises are just bound to grow. So I, I hope that um, people will. I hope people will get the film, use it as a tool, and and spread the word. It, it definitely has proven itself to be. Uh, a welcome tool for many groups that are using it in the transition town movement and you know, anyone concerned with global warming is, um, who thinks about it for two minutes understands the importance of localization. Bill McKibben, you know, has been promoting it with his also with his books and especially more recent articles. So and Bill McKibben is in our film, Vandana Shiva is in our film, David Corton is in our film and some very wise and important voices from other parts of the world. We've, we've got voices from five continents. We've tried to show this from a, a truly global perspective. And maybe most importantly of all is the message that, that this is what we need to be more happy, to feel joy in our lives. You know, that connection to nature and to others is the absolute key element. Um, and, you know, the connection to nature, of course, translates, as I said before, also to multi-dimensional things, you know, more exercise, fresher food, you know, so that it's in a, in a holistic way, um, this part. I have no doubt that that's where we need to go. The film has been, I've just had a, a letter from the Prime Minister of Bhutan that I'm very happy with because he actually says in black and white, that your film beautifully portrays exactly what we're trying to do 
is inviting me to a meeting at the UN. We also mention in our film that this kingdom of Bhutan is has for a long time been talking about gross national happiness instead of gross national product. And um, this has now been taken up by international economists, other governments, and there's a movement now towards gross national happiness, as well as within Bhutan, they have actually now, they're basically screening all their policies through the uh, gross national happiness criteria. I, I don't think they've yet succeeded in, you know, really, truly implementing it fully. I mean, well, they haven't. But the, the prime minister is very sincere, and so and the, the, the prime minister of the government, the government in exile of Tibet, is a close friend and ally, and he's also in our film. Yeah, but quite a few Buddhist rinpoches are, you know, are on board, and and uh, yeah, we're we're very happy about the way the film has been received. You also have a conference coming up, the Economics of Happiness Conference in uh, Berkeley, California, March 23 to 25, 2012. Would you like to speak a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. Yes, that would be very uh, helpful if people could look on our website, the, the economicsofhappiness.org economicsofhappiness.org and see information about the conference. It's a follow-on from the film and it's uh, it's weird. We've done this before. We had a, a meeting in London many years ago about shifting from global to local where David Corton and Vandana Shiva were there too. This is now a bigger gathering where um, you know Vandana Shiva and, and Annie Leonard and um, uh, you know, we have about 20 speakers from around the world. Um, we, we're trying to encourage a strengthening of the localization movement through, it again, that deeper dialogue I talked about earlier. I see a great need for a deeper dialogue between what's now called North and South, you know, between the more industrialized and less industrialized parts of the world. So this will be, again, a truly global gathering with the idea of strengthening a global localization movement. We have the idea of setting up a sort of IAL, an international alliance for localization. Uh, we, we probably won't do that yet. It's, you know, it requires a lot of funding. We, we are, um, unfortunately, as the interest in our work has grown, the funding hasn't really, it's because it dropped off so steeply with the financial crisis, a lot of our support is basically from individuals, mainly in the United States, and we're a registered charity, a non-profit, you know, based in Berkeley. And so uh, we hope we hope that there will be more funding or that somehow this, you know, an international alliance will be form because we uh, we see all the time a lot of misunderstandings. You know, sadly now, for instance, the discussion of China, you know, it, it's being done without any understanding of the fact that this was created by global corporations and banks. The growth in China did not happen from China, from the Chinese. And, you know, we should just stop and think for a minute what it would mean if that foreign capital withdrew, including, you know, the policies that have made us completely dependent on, you know, virtually everything we need being produced in China. So, and another concomitant of that is that our CO2 emissions are in China, not in the U.S. So the whole discussion about CO2 emissions and how third world countries should have the right to pollute more and they shouldn't have to reduce them as quickly, that's a corporate message. Because it's our dirty laundry. Those CO2 emissions are very often Western corporations and now also Chinese corporations producing um, things for us and creating a lot of pollution over there. So, of course, we should be lobbying for lower CO2 emissions there, too. Anyway, so this deeper, I think, dialogue between what's happening in the West and in the non-Western world, 
I think is it's one of the pieces in the puzzle that again will shed light on globalization and will shed light on the strategic way forward. Can I, do we have time for me to say something more about that? Yes, absolutely. Please go ahead. Yeah, I think I think there, for instance, in the U.S. now, I know there's a lot of discussion about the personhood of corporations, mm. and I would argue that just as I, you know, I was talking about the elites around the world, but you know how that's not really where the action is now. I would say if we if we really look at what's been happening in the world over particularly over the last thirty years, then the action has been in this deregulation of trade and finance. So what we need to be looking for is a re-regulation of trade and finance, but not so the, the key element is to build a movement that will demand that. Um, because this is again why even Obama will be frightened of banks and corporations going elsewhere. I mean, this is, this is why the United States is being impoverished, because the policies have allowed the, you know, the wealth to be drained. I've, I've always said that, you know, Bush isn't in promoting this global agenda. He's not helping the American people. He's more helping the creation of billionaires in China and and Malaysia than the 99% of Americans. And what's so helpful when you see it really globally is that this is not either some nationalistic, chauvinistic, um, you know, xenophobic way of, you know, localizing. It's not about just keeping wealth for ourselves and continuing to rob the rest of the world. This agenda is about us really starting to live off our own resources in a more creative and sustainable way. Having seen the amazing productivity, you know, from really small farms, mm. because ultimately we have to really go back to those basics when we think about the economy. Ultimately, as we know, everything we need and use comes from the land. And having seen just the most astounding success and productivity on tiny farms with the right amount of labor, you know, with enough people doing the caring, intelligent work of harvesting and planting, not blind machines, you know, just ripping off things before they're ripe and then burning half of them because they're not big enough to fit the, the you know, packaging that goes to the supermarket. When we're talking about eliminating all that waste and blindness and stupidity, the the real wealth that could be created, I think, vastly exceeds anything that we can even, you know, that most people imagine. But yeah, it's 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 about a really, you know, profound reassessing of of the economy from the ground up. And I'm afraid that I don't see that very much in the even in the ecological economics movement. Uh, yeah. I'm, I better not go on too long, and I hope I don't sound too critical. No, um, it's really good to um, hear someone speak up about all this. And um, we have spiraled to the end of this conversation. And I'd like to ask you, Helena, what you would like to say in closing? What I would like to say in closing? Well, I would like to say thank you so much for Future Primitive and that you exist and that you're doing this work. And thank you for the opportunity to get our voice out, which is hard. And um, we'd appreciate any help in getting it out further. And I suppose I urge any listeners to please Look at our website, theeconomicsofhappiness.org, and help to spread the word. And I hope that what I said is hopeful and inspiring. I know that talking about the big global economy can often leave people feeling very overwhelmed. And I, I believe that's another of the key reasons why we're in so much trouble is that people somehow have the idea that this is too big to change. And uh, my conviction is that it is changing already and in many positive signs and that it's got to change. Uh, 
that the more we can do, you know, the sooner the better. Um, let's not let's not go along with the idea that things have to collapse first. I I see too many young people collapsing under a weight of depression and anxiety. I see too many ecosystems suffering. We we have collapse all around us. So let's focus on the root cause and and try to make change. And and maybe just also add, I do believe that when people see more clearly this connection path of community and nature, that part of what we're saying can help people feel more inspired and happy and joyful in their daily lives, you know, more or less immediately. I'd like to, if you um, if if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, close with this quote. Helena's message is quite clear. She says, The way forward is about more time with each other, more time in community and closer contact with the natural world around us. And to achieve that, we need to support the local economy, farmers' markets, for example, or developing a relationship with the local bank or the corner shop. It's not going back to the past. It's returning to that foundation of connection all over again. Thank you again, Helena. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.